following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Turn to Mark chapter 1, please. Mark chapter 1, this page 836. From the Bibles there in front of you. I cannot believe it's been a month since I stood up here last time. My name is Stacy Potts, by the way. I should introduce myself again. I uh, love that song we just sang. I think it's because I love Psalm 103 so much. It reminded me, <clears throat> this is totally off subject, but it reminded me this week I was doing a little bit just studying, uh, I forget what passage I even started studying, but I was looking up a particular Greek word. It's the Greek word legizomai. It means to think about, to count, to consider. A lot of times when you see the word consider yourself dead, that kind of, that word consider there is the word here. But at its root, it, it means to keep a mental list of something, to keep a record in your mind. And I was looking up some of the places where that word is used. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that uh, God in Christ has redeemed us to himself, no longer counting our trespasses against him, no longer keeping a mental record of all of our failures and faults and sins. And when you think about all the times you sin against God, isn't it such an encouragement to realize that our God, because of Jesus, never, ever again counts our trespasses against us. No more record, no more list in his mind, only in ours, only in Satan's as he likes to accuse us. And so I was just really encouraged by that. That song reminded me of it. So there you go. Let's pray and we'll be done. Um, Thank you all for uh, letting me be gone for the last few weeks. Thank you, Jared and Jordan and Chris for filling in for me. Uh, I heard that last Sunday, all of you who like to complain about how cold it is in our building were finally shut up once and for all. Is that true? No? Okay. I heard it was uh, pretty warm in here, so I appreciate your uh, willingness and patience to go through that. We were gone for the last few weeks. Apparently, a number of you believe we were in Chicago. We never went to Chicago. We were in Asheville, North Carolina, and we enjoyed a nice vacation there. I brought you back a couple of pictures uh, to show you some stuff that we saw while we were there, mainly because when I'm out and about nowadays, I am always looking for things that entertain me and make me laugh, and so I like to take pictures of them, and I found a couple that I want to show you. The first one I got to set up for you just a, a little bit. We were, we were driving on Interstate 40, and we had uh, gone west of Greensboro, and on the way, we kept seeing these signs for a restaurant chain out in western North Carolina. It's not in eastern North Carolina where I grew up. This is out in western North Carolina called Biscuitville. Has anyone ever eaten at Biscuitville? What do they serve? Um, that wasn't, that was a Never mind. If I had to explain it to you, it wasn't worth it. Uh, so we're going to stop at a Biscuitville to eat lunch. And so we get off this, uh, at this particular exit, and as we're pulling into Biscuitville and parking, there is another restaurant that is right next to Biscuitville that's a local place. And the sign that was outside of it cracked us up so much that we decided to not eat at Biscuitville to go eat there instead. Here's the sign we saw. Oh, i got to use the top one he said. Mountain Fried Chicken. It's not greasy. And there's a number of things I love about the sign. I love, first of all, that they had to put a trademark on the word mountain. I love that their slogan is, it's not greasy. But, but more than any of this, on the picture of the hillbilly, he's got his shotgun, he's got his, his moonshine jug. If you zoom in here and look, notice that he's holding his beard with one hand, and the chicken leg is stuck to the back of this hand. So it's not greasy, but it apparently is very sticky, chicken. It was actually very, very good. It was very, very good uh, food. It was a dump. It was a total dump. But it was very, very good food. And so 
we enjoyed our mountain fried chicken on the way into uh, to Asheville. The next one, again, needs a little bit of explanation as well. So the reason we went to Asheville is because Jamie's mom is an insurance, uh, sells insurance, and she wins trips every year. They, you know how that works. They give away trips to the best agents, and she's a really good agent, so she wins these trips. And this was one of the trips where you could bring family members along with you, which is why we were going along. And so the hotel they put us in was this really nice resort up in the mountains called the Grove Park Inn. And the reason it got the name Grove Park Inn is because a guy by the name of Edwin Grove built this thing. And it's, it's over the top nice. I mean, it's not a kind of place you, uh, I would ever go like on a regular vacation. I'm like a Best Western Motel 6 kind of guy. But, but at this time, we got to, to go hang out at the Grove Park Inn. And the guy named Edwin Grove was a pharmacist back in the early 1900s. But he became a millionaire because of an invention of his. He, uh, at the time, malaria was a real problem in the southeastern United States, a lot of mosquitoes, no mosquito control, no way to stop it. And then, as now, the, the best treatment for malaria is what? Quinine, yeah, quinine. That was a little science question for you this morning, quinine. And so, people would have to take quinine to overcome the malaria. And malaria, if you don't know, it causes you to have fevers and chills. It causes you to lose a lot of weight, become very, very weak. It can kill you. And so, uh, but it tastes horrible. Quinine tastes horrible to, to treat this thing. And so people, I think, apparently were like really debating, should we take the quinine to treat the malaria? Would it be better just to keep malaria than to take the treatment? And Edwin Grove came up with a way to suspend the quinine in a, in a liquid so that it had no taste to it. And so he made millions off of this, and he built this over-the-top uh, hotel resort up in the mountains of Asheville. I brought a picture. This is not the one I wanted to show you, but just to give you an idea, this is the fireplace. It's probably about 50 feet wide, about 30 feet high, and these are boulders. You could walk into the firebox and stand there without ducking. The whole building was built by the same people who did the Biltmore Mansion, and it's just massive, huge, and amazing. But he got rich off of that special little quinine thing. He called it Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic. Grove for his name, tasteless because he got rid of the flavor chill because it cures the chills of malaria and tonic because it's a medicine. And here was one of their most successful ads. Grove's Tasteless Chill Tonic makes children and adults as fat as pigs. You can't see it, but below the, the Groves Tasteless Chill Tonic thing, it says uh, sold for 20 years, over one and a half million bottles sold last year. And this picture freaks me out for so many reasons. <laughs> one, I'm not sure that this is an actual baby. I think it was just a man they found. I mean, look at the receding hairline and the double chin. I think it's a picture of my dad when he was a baby. <laughs> but they put him on this freaky pig body. And, and I love that they could actually advertise that something, a product that makes you fat. Can you imagine trying to advertise something like that today? No one would buy it. But the idea was that by taking this, you'd be able to gain your weight back and become healthy again, and, and it would make you, make you well. So there you go. A couple of quick pictures from our trip uh, just that we enjoyed. And I'm always looking for stupid stuff like that. We are about to enter a new section of Mark. If you are new with us or you haven't been here for a while, we started the Gospel of Mark about probably two or, or three months ago now. And we took a couple of weeks, two, three weeks up front just to introduce the, the book to us. And then we took the next several weeks to work through Mark's prologue. The first 13 verses of the Gospel of Mark are a prologue that are designed to introduce us to who this man Jesus really is. Because in the story, they're not going to know who he is for some time. 
But Mark doesn't want us to be confused about who he is. And so he gives us three little scenes. He introduces John the Baptist. He talks about Jesus' baptism. He talks about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. All of it designed to show us that this man Jesus is no ordinary man, right? That he is, in fact, the Son of God, the one who has come from God, the fulfillment of God's promises, bringing the Spirit, able to defeat sin and death so that as we are reading through the story, we'll know what we're reading as we go along, who we're reading about, so we can really appreciate it. And typically, like as I've talked about here in the past, we try to read whole sections of Scripture, and that was easy in the prologue because it was only 13 verses. Our next section is like the rest of the book of Mark. So we're not going to read that every Sunday. I'm going to break that up into smaller pieces as we work through it. Today we're going to read verses 14 to 20, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, look at verse 14, and we will jump in. Mark writes this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Jesus, we are excited to come back to this gospel, but but the reason we're excited is because finally now we get to begin walking those dusty roads with Jesus. We we get to begin hearing his voice, seeing what he does, listening to what he teaches, and this is why we have come to this book. We, We want to see Jesus. We want to understand him. We want to know him, not not in the way that Perhaps we've always envisioned him from from our days in Sunday school or from whatever background that we've learned about him from. We want to see him as he is, to hear him as he speaks, to not water it down or dilute it, but to come face to face with Jesus Christ. Because we know, as we have said from the beginning, we know that if we see him face to face, we will be changed. And that's what we want. And so, Lord, as we begin this journey today here into his public ministry, will you help us to really understand what it is that he is all about, what he's calling us to, what he wants from us, what we're supposed to think and know and do. Open our eyes both today and for the rest of this journey so that we will walk away from each and every Sunday confronted by how far short we fall and how much grace you've given. And so, Lord, we we thank you for this opportunity. We ask that your spirit will open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone in here today who doesn't know you as their Savior, will you use even the the simple, weak message that we have this morning to, to open their eyes to see their desperate need for you. Lord, this is This is what this gospel is all about, to bring men and women to repentance and belief at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so we come today asking in advance for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's sermon is really just about two main words. These are two words that if you have grown up in church at all, you've probably heard 
tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of times, I wouldn't be shocked. Even if you haven't grown up in a church setting, it's very possible that you are very familiar with these words as well. But despite our great familiarity with these words, I am thoroughly convinced that many of us really don't understand them correctly, or at least I can say with assurance that we don't understand them completely. I'm talking about the two words that Jesus ends this very first statement with here in verse 15, the words repent and believe. Verses 14 and 15 serve as our introduction to the public ministry of Jesus. In the prologue, Mark is trying to help us as readers just get our minds around who this character is, this man Jesus, who is he? And and we've seen that fully, but we haven't yet heard Jesus speak. We haven't yet walked down any roads with him. And so as we come to verse 14, we are beginning that journey. We're beginning to see him interacting with other people. We're beginning to listen to what it is that he has to say to us. This is, in many respects, a a, a way for Mark to introduce to us not just the public ministry of Jesus, but the entire ministry of Jesus. What What is he here for? What is this all about? And many commentators and scholars believe, and I believe with them, that Mark chooses this as his beginning point for that express reason. Because here in verses 14 and 15, this very first statement of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, I think we see encapsulated in these words the entire public ministry of Jesus until he dies on the cross. In other words, everything else we see from this point forward will in some way, shape, or form be tied to or focused on calling men and women to both repentance and belief. Well, if that's true, and I think that it is true, if that's true, then we better make sure that we understand these two ideas. We better make sure that when we are reading these words, both here and later on in the gospel, that we're not bringing to these words our own faulty understandings or incomplete understandings, but rather that we are bringing to these words Jesus's understanding. When he calls us to repent, what is he calling us to? I know what I think when I think of repentance, but is that the same thing Jesus thought of? When he calls us to believe in him, am I understanding the word believe there in the same way that Jesus meant for me to understand it? Do you see the, the question? And it's, it's that issue, that, those questions that are at the very heart of what we're going to do today. In fact, because these issues are so important and so pressing, because these are the primary questions of both today's sermon and in many respects what the rest of the gospel is going to be about, I decided to kind of treat today a little, bit, a little bit differently just to help us really get our minds around them. What we're going to do today is just kind of have a little family talk all around the words repentance and belief. And if you're new to us, you haven't been here before, you don't know what a, one of our little family talks are. One of our family talks is when we, it, it's a sermon, but I, it's more informal. I, I just want to speak to you from the heart about what these words mean, what they're, what they're all about. We're not even going to really work through the verse itself today. We're going to do that next Sunday. But if we don't get our minds wrapped around these words, I'm afraid we're going to miss the whole point. I'm afraid that many of us come to both the concept of repentance and belief 
understanding it sort of like this, okay? We've got this slice of understanding. And, and hopefully much, if not all, of what is in this slice of our understanding is correct. But my fear is that we, we've cut the slice a little too thin. That repentance is more than just a little slice that we've made it out to be, that it's much broader than that. That for some of us in here, belief is more than the little slice that we've, we've cut it into, that it's, it's much more than that. And without expanding our horizons on these two words, on these two concepts, the very first two commands that Jesus gives in this gospel, without expanding our understanding of that, how are we going to approach all the rest of his teachings? This is, this is why we're taking today and making it a little different. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to work through these two words only. What is repentance what is belief? What is it not? What, what wrong understands, understandings have we brought to it? And when we get done with that, we're just going to ask some really hard questions of ourselves. Are we repenting? Are we truly believing? Are we doing the things that Jesus has asked us to do, has called us to do, has commanded us to do? And if we understand it correctly... Hopefully, as we work through the rest of the gospel, when we see these ideas and we hear Jesus saying things that sound crazy, like if you want to save your life, lose it. If you want to be a disciple of mine, leave everything behind. Hate your mother and father. When we come across these crazy comments that we want to explain away, we will be, for the first time, hopefully, able to say, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. maybe we shouldn't explain those away. Maybe when Jesus is calling us to this crazy kind of commitment, maybe he actually means it. Maybe I better rethink who Jesus is and what he's asking of me. That's our, that's our mission today. And so let's just begin with trying to get our mind around a right understanding of repentance. What is repentance? Well, the word repentance, as most of you would probably know if you've been here, I've given you this definition, though it is no longer adequate in my mind. But the definition I've used in the past, one you may have heard, is the idea of turning away from one thing and turning to something else. And that definition is good, it is right, but it is not enough. Let me talk with you about three things that repentance is not to make sure that we can clear out some of the cobwebs so you'll see why that definition is not enough. Number one, repentance is not only about specific sins. Repentance is not only about specific sins. And the reason I'm saying it this way is because of the vocabulary that we tend to use a lot of the time. We'll talk about our need to repent of lying. Well, I, I lie and I shouldn't lie, so I need to repent of this sin and, and stop lying. Or, you know, I, I'm, I really struggle with lust, and so I need to repent of this lust and go the other way. I, I'm a gossiper. I need to repent of my gossip so I can go the other way. And we, we want to define repentance or limit repentance to these specific sins that we have identified in our life. And while that's fine and good, you certainly can repent of specific sins. That is not enough. Do you fully understand or even know, are you even aware of all of the specific sins you commit on a daily basis? I'm not. Do you have any way of plumbing the depths of the wickedness of our hearts 
to see all that we do in rebellion against God. I, I don't. We are told that in us, that is in our flesh, dwells how many good things? None. So if in my flesh there is no good thing, do I even believe that for a moment I can identify all of those things to repent of them individually or specifically as I should? It is not about specific sins that we've identified as if those are the only things wrong in our lives that we need to turn away from and turn to Jesus for and follow his way of living. It's not about specific sins at all. Number two, it is not a one-time thing. It is not a one-time thing. Again, we tend to use the vocabulary that leads us down this path of saying, well, I repented of my drinking back in 1975. I wasn't even born. I repented of this back in such and such. Or I still need to repent of this sin and I'll do it at some point in the future. And, and, and we think of it as this thing that happens one time and then we, we move on from it as if it never happens again. But does our struggle with sin cease? Do we ever come to a point where even with the sins of which we have turned away from that there is never temptation or struggle there again? Can it really be something that is done at one point in time and, and never repeated or need to be repeated thereafter? I don't think so. It's not a one-time thing. Number three, repentance is not separate from belief. Repentance is not separate from belief. In other words, all the people who surround us who would say, well, we can just simply turn our lives around. Apart from Jesus, they're lying to you. They're lying to you. There is no turning your life around apart from Jesus. There is no way of reforming yourself apart from Jesus. You might be able to change certain actions that you dislike or that cause you harm in your life, in your marriage, in your family, at your work, whatever, but nothing truly changes a person apart from belief in the gospel. And so we can't talk about simply repenting in our own strength. Even as believers, we can't talk about repenting in our own power and in our own ability. There is never going to be repentance apart from belief. And so it's not just about specific sins. It's not just a one-time thing. And it is never separate from belief, ever. So what is it? Well, let's just look at the word that Jesus uses here. He uses a, a Greek word called metanoeo. It doesn't really mean anything to you, but, but this concept has to do with turning, but not just from specific things. He is calling us to a total change of life. That's what the word repentance is really all about. It's not turning around one thing. It's turning around everything. Every thought, every decision, every action, every attitude, every value, every direction, every dream, every emotion, everything that makes up who we are, Jesus is here commanding us to turn it all around from where it was and point it directly at him. One person I was reading wrote it this way, that repentance is a total change, both in thought and behavior, with respect to how one should both think and act. It is a change of the whole person. And you say, well, 
why would it be so broad? What does that mean? Well, can I just ask you a couple of really easy, I think easy, theological questions that I hope all of us can answer? Before we came to Jesus, were we alive or dead? Dead. Were we a little dead or like mostly dead or all dead? All dead. So if we're dead in the, good job, 100%. If we are dead in the totality of our being, our mind is dead, our heart is dead, our emotions are dead, our will is dead, our decision-making abilities are dead, our future plans are dead, everything we love is dead. If everything in the totality of our being is contrary to what God wants, then why do we ever begin to think that repentance is just about the seven things that bother us the most? Why would we ever think that God would be content if we just turn around five or six things? Or maybe that one big thing that's really bothered you for years, that you know about, and it's a horrible sin and you need to change it. Well, if you just change that, God will, he'll be okay with the rest of it. Jesus isn't calling you to just step away from one thing or two things or three things. Jesus is calling us to turn away from everything that we were, everything that was heading in this direction, and turn with our whole heart to him so that we love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Just think about the greatest commandment. He wants a total change of who we are. That's why he makes us a new creation, right? So the old man, the old self can die and everything that went with it can die and be changed to live for him. It's not about just specific things. It's a total change of life. Number two, it's not a one-time thing. It's a constant thing. A never-ending thing. See, we have this problem with, with when we translate from one language to another. Some of you are, can you know, do this with other modern languages, but same for modern as ancient. It's sometimes hard to get the right nuance of a translation. And here in this verse, you see an example of this. When, when Jesus says to us, repent and believe, that's not, not quite right. Because in English, we don't have a way of saying it exactly the way he would. So I'm going to give you a really awkward sounding translation, but Hopefully it will help you get the point a little bit better. Jesus, after saying all these other things, doing all these other things, looks at the crowd and says, be repenting. Be repenting. Make that the way you are. You have to constantly be repenting if you're going to follow me. Constantly changing who you were, turning away from these things that you were to come and follow me. Be repenting. And the reason he says it like this is because none of us can be perfect at any point in this life. We will be perfect when we see Jesus face to face, person to person. But until that day, he calls us to be repenting constantly, all the time. Every time something comes up in our lives, in our hearts, that reminds us of who we were, where we were going, how we used to think, how we used to do things, the response as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, is to repent, to turn, to pursue Christ to the exclusion of those things, to embrace being who you are. That's why I love the book of Ephesians, by the way. In Ephesians, Paul takes the first three chapters and says, okay, So you used to be this guy over here. Now this is who you are. 
Because of Jesus, you've been made this and this and this and this and this. Here's who you are now. Last three chapters, go be who you are. First three chapters, here's who you are. Next three chapters, go be who you are. It's this call to, to embrace this repentance of all of life, to go follow hard after Jesus in any and everything. It's not a one-time thing that you do it and you're done and you never need to do it again. It's every day, every moment until the day you see him face to face. Number three, it's not separate from our belief. It is inseparable from our belief and in fact is the evidence of it. It's the evidence of our belief. James talks about this, right? Passage probably jumped in some of your minds. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? What good is it? Well, if you don't know what good it is, he'll give you an analogy, an illustration to make sure that you understand it. He says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed, they don't have enough clothing, and they're lacking in daily food, they're hungry, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So you've got a guy in front of you and he's, he's cold and he's hungry, and you're like, go be warmed and filled, brother. And you give him that smile, that good church smile, right? Go be warmed and filled. And you don't give him a, a blanket, a sweater. You don't give him anything to eat. What have you done for him? Nothing. It's obvious. We get it. He says then, okay, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Because his expectation is that people who truly believe, and we'll talk about what true belief is here in just a moment. But people who truly believe, they repent. People who truly believe don't keep living this way. They turn and they live this way. They don't, they don't need to continue down those paths. They'll show their faith by their works. That's why I said that repentance and belief are inseparable. Two sides of the same coin. And one is the proof of the other. And so when you take all of that together and we ask the question, what is repentance? What did Jesus mean by this word? Here's what I would say. He is calling us to embrace a path of pursuing constant change in the totality of our lives as an evidence of our faith. I'll say it one more time. He is calling us to embrace a path of pursuing constant change in the totality of our lives as an evidence of our faith. In other words, he's calling us to discipleship. That's just a better way of saying it, a little more succinct. He's calling us to discipleship. He is calling us to repent. Let's talk about the second word now. Let's talk about belief. Because what I don't want you to walk out of here now at this point is saying, okay, I just need to change my life, right? I need to repent. I can do this. If I get up tomorrow morning and I work really hard, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix all this stuff. I'm going to repent and live for Jesus all the time. Well, I already told you, you can't repent apart from belief. And so the, the two go together. And so we need to really understand belief as well if we're going to live our lives in this manner. The, the word belief, again, it's a simple word. It just means to have faith. To have 
faith. But, but like I said earlier, this is a, a tough word to translate in English. There's no really good English equivalent exactly for exactly what Jesus is saying here. So let's try to get our minds around what he's saying by, again, doing the same thing, what it isn't and what it is, okay? Three things that it isn't. Number one, it is not simply a, a, an expression, an act, or an exercise of intellectual assent. It's not simply about accepting certain things as true. That's what I'm trying to say. You say uh, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You believe that fact. Excellent. You can believe that Jesus was, uh, excuse me, that he died on the cross for our sins. That's very, very good. You can believe that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Again, that is very, very good. I'm glad that you accept these certain facts as true. But accepting facts as being true and believing them in that way is not the kind of belief that saves us. And it is not what Jesus is calling us to hear. In James chapter 2, again, he goes back to this idea, because he, he's, he's kind of interacting with this imaginary opponent who's arguing with him through this very point. And he says, okay, you want to talk about what you believe, let's talk about what the demons believe. The demons believe that there is one God. And, and, and just pause for a second. There's a reason why he picks that example. Because as he's writing from his Jewish context to Jewish believers, he, he recognizes that for them, the ultimate expression of orthodoxy is a belief in one God. Because in the Jewish world, everyone else around them was, they were polytheists. And here the Jews are these monotheists in the middle of a, a polytheistic world. And so if you believe in one God, hey, you're, you're in. You're doing good. You, you've been to seminary, haven't you? You, you know some stuff. So you believe that, that there's one God? That's, hey, that's tremendous. The demons also believe that and they tremble. He, he's saying to us that right theology, right thinking, believing or accepting certain facts as being true is not enough. No one in this room believes the facts of the gospel better than Satan. No one in this room believes in the deity of Jesus more than the demons. And none of them are saved. The gospel isn't about you accepting facts as if you're preparing for a jeopardy appearance. Faith is not about that belief is not about that. And so whatever Jesus is calling us to here is not simply about accepting facts as being true. Number two, again, it's not a one-time thing. Real, genuine, biblical belief is not a one-time thing as if I just believed in the past and therefore, you know, we're good to go. It's not something that just happens or is going to happen tomorrow because you're going to, you know, it's not a one-time thing. And number three, it is not separate from repentance. See, I'm, I'm, I'm smart like that. I'm, I'm like crossing them. You can't believe and not repent. There's no sense in which you can accept Jesus as Savior and not accept him as Lord. That's the, the vocabulary that people who want to argue this point like to use. If you're going to accept him as your Savior, you are accepting him as your Lord. You're going to have to embrace repentance and discipleship for all that it is. And so if it's not these things, what is it? What is Jesus calling us to here? Number one, what it is, 
It is a total trust in Jesus to the abandonment of all other hope. A total trust in Jesus to the abandonment of all other hope. That, that's what biblical faith is. That's why the word belief just isn't, it's just not quite enough. It's the word trust and the, the word hope and the word confidence and belief all mixed into some package that I can't quite get my mind around without a sentence. <laughs> I can't find one word that does it. But it's, it's the placing of all of my trust in who Jesus is and what he has done for me while at the same time abandoning every other possible hope. So, I'm going to repeat a story, but I do that from time to time, and you're gracious and let me do it. So here I am at 18. I'm an unbeliever, and I'm sitting in this college class that I was required to take. It was a Bible, it was a Christian college, it wasn't a Bible college, it was a Christian college. And it was a Bible class we were required to take, and our, our professor, Dr. Minnick, is up front, and he's explaining this very point. And I had grown up in church, and if you'd asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said, yes, I believed the gospel. I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He had died for my sins, was buried, and rose again. And I'm sitting there listening to him explain this concept of what biblical belief is. And he uses this analogy that for me gripped me so strongly that to this day when I think about it, I, I can never forget it. And, and for you, if it doesn't do anything, well, oh well, it doesn't. But here it is. He said, picture yourself at the top of a mountain on, a, on those old-timey rail cars, you know, like you see in movies where they're moving coal around. Old-timey rail car. And there's down, you're looking down the mountain. There's the, the tracks going down. And at the end of the mountain is a cliff. And the tracks go off the cliff and just end. And out past the cliff is utter darkness. And as you're born, you begin to go down this, this mountain in the rail car. And it's picking up speed, going faster and faster and faster. Until one day you fly off the tracks out into the darkness who or what are you trusting in to catch you at that moment? And I'm sitting there listening to this, and it's a silly illustration perhaps. But for the very first time, I realized like I was trying to do this. Like if I could just grab the cart, and I'm going, wait, that's not enough. And I started to ask the question, where is my hope? Where is my trust? And I began to realize my trust was in me. My trust was in the, the fact that I had walked an aisle when I was nine and prayed a prayer at the front, and I had been a pretty good kid by every public standard that you could measure me by. And here I am completely placing my trust in myself, even though I believe all the details. Every fact was right. And God used that moment to open my eyes to the only hope I had when I went flying off the cliff, is if Jesus reaches out his hand and catches me. Nothing else. Here we sit in this room, many of us, growing up in church, sitting here every Sunday, and I can't help but wonder how many of us in this room really believe, really have placed our trust in the right things is that old line from that, that hymn, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's the only plea we have. 
The only hope we have, the only trust we have. And so when you want to know what Jesus means when he says believe, he's talking about placing total trust, the abandonment of all other hope, placing your trust in him. Two, it's a constant thing. Again, he says be believing, be trusting, continue doing this. Never stop believing. Believe more. Keep, keep going in this journey of belief. And then the number three, it's inseparable from our repentance, as I said earlier. And again, is the evidence of it. Being a believer isn't proven by praying a prayer or joining a church or being baptized or any of those other things. Being a believer is shown in our fruit and in our faith. And so this is what Jesus is calling us to when he calls us to repentance and belief. He's calling us to change our whole life, to abandon where we were headed and what we were focused on before and follow him. And when he calls us to believe, he's not simply asking us to to fill in a multiple choice test. He's talking about placing every ounce of hope and trust that we have in Jesus. And so the question is, how are we doing with these things? Because whether you're here today as a believer or not, the command stands for every single one of us to be repenting and to be believing. Have we examined our entire life, our thinking, how we think about this world, how we think about things? Does that reflect Jesus's view of the world or, or our culture's view of the world? Let's talk about our attitudes. Do our attitudes reflect following Jesus or following our old way of life? What about our values, the things we we find pleasure in and enjoy? Do they reflect following Jesus or following that old way of life? Our actions, our decisions, our dreams, our future direction and plans. Where are you on the journey? Have you turned in a couple of things when in many others you continue living just like you did? Would your neighbors be able to tell in any way, shape, or form that you're a follower of Jesus? Would they know from looking at your life? Have we changed just one or two things, or are we following him with our whole heart? Jesus, in this gospel, is going to call us to abandon everything for him. He's going to call us to believe. And again, whether you're here today as a believer or not, I ask you these questions. Are you believing? Has your trust waned over time? Has, have you allowed other hope to creep in so that now you're like, well, I, I really have hope in myself that I'm a good person. I do all this other stuff. Have you taken your eyes off of the centrality, the supremacy, and the necessity of Jesus? Do you see him and him alone as the most valuable thing in your life? Where is your heart Jesus is calling us to repentance and belief. I call it the original R&B, all right? It's the original R&B. It's a call to discipleship. That's what it is. And, and here we see that repentance and belief is the essence, essence of discipleship. It's what this gospel is about. It's why he came. It's why he's going to die. It's why he's going to rise from the dead so that he can gather us together, give us his spirit, and send us out to call others to repentance and belief as well. Will you bow your heads just for a moment? I just want you to take a moment. I'm not going to, we're not going to do anything where you have to respond. I just want, you, just want to talk to you very, very quickly here. If you 
honestly examine your life today, your heart, your mind, your motivations, your, your desires, your actions, all of the things I've named, can you honestly say that you have walked away from that old way of living, that old self, that old man, and have in turn now embraced following Jesus in every way? I, I know we'll never be perfect, but if the Lord, if the Spirit brings anything to your mind right now, Will you just thank him for bringing that to mind and commit yourself to examining your heart, examining your life so that you can repent of who you were and follow him wholeheartedly? Will you just, just take a moment to do that right now? In a similar way, if you're here today and, and you're a believer in Jesus, but your, your faith has waned, you You've allowed other hopes to creep in. Just remember that you have no hope apart from Jesus. Nothing. There is nothing else. Just as you are without one plea except that his blood was shed for you. That's, that's the only plea. The only hope. The only trust. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus, your hope is in something or someone else. I'm telling you, there is no other hope person. There is no other truth. Your hope is in this or it is in nothing. And so I call you today, I urge you today to be believing, to be repenting, and to never stop until you see him face to face. Jesus, we desperately, desperately as your people need to hear this and need to think about it. We need to spend our time meditating on it so that we can Go out and be the disciples that you have called us to be. You haven't looked for people to simply be on your team, to name your name so that we can just go on living our own lives, but with a, a Christian label. You want followers. You want disciples. You want people to pick up their cross and follow after you. And that's not easy. You made a practice of driving people away. And so as we stand here today at the beginning of this journey down these roads with you, and we see that your very first commands are repent and believe. We want to understand them completely, to think about them broadly, and to live them out in every possible way. So Jesus, thank you for these commands. And even next week, just as, as we come back into these same two verses and begin to look at why you said them, help us to really get our minds around what it means to repent and believe and be followers of you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you in your name. Amen.